This morning, uh, we're going to crack open the scriptures as we always do and see what they have to say to us. You know, there's a conviction throughout uh, church history. The church has historically believed that when we come, both in these spaces on Sundays and in our individual times throughout the week, when we come and when we open the scriptures with open hearts and with minds and souls that are postured and leaned in to what God's saying, then something happens. Encounter happens. Divine exchange happens. Uh, We, yes, glean things uh, rationally and learn maybe some cool tidbits of theology that's nice that we can stick in our theological file. But more than that, there is actual encountering Jesus that happens as we sit under the scriptures. So let that be so of our time together. We're going to continue our series this morning on sin. And we're in week two, and we're going to call this morning The Fruit and the Fall. We're going to look at a lot of passages, a lot of texts this morning. So if you got your Bibles, get those ready. Uh, we're going to be camping out in Genesis 1 through 3 and uh, see what the Lord has to speak to us this morning. So let's quiet our hearts and posture ourselves and present ourselves before our Lord of life, as we always do. And would you let the cares that maybe have clung to you this weekend, stuff, conversations, circumstances, fears, nagging anxiety, would you, that just clings to you, would you allow the Holy Spirit to just shell those off of you right now? Take some deep breaths if you need to. Present yourself before the Lord of life who has nothing but good things for you. Jesus said that it's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And so, Father, we pray for kingdom life to break through and to sweep through in this space this morning. Where there's areas that have grown cold in our lives, Holy Spirit, would you be the fire that ignites and warms our souls? Those areas of our lives where we've let things seep in and sin creep in and we've said yes to another lordship. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you be the fire that purges those areas? The fire that brings uh, incineration to darkness, incineration to sin. And the life-giving, abiding presence of you. We pray that that would be done. And we pray, Lord, that as we sit under your scriptures this morning, would you teach us and instruct us? Uh, I pray that you would order these meager thoughts uh, according to your good pleasure. And I pray that the scriptures would just be put on display and they would sing and they would shine this morning. And would you speak to us corporately and individually? Would you speak to us in the uh, specificity of our circumstances, and would you be Lord of all this morning? Provoke us, woo us, call us into deeper levels of kingdom life, we're asking, and we commit our minds and our souls and our emotions and our attitudes and the entirety of our being to you this morning. Would you speak, Holy Spirit, for your servants are listening. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the young adult said, amen, amen. Genesis 1, people, Genesis 1. And don't check out on me if these are familiar passages of Scripture. Don't uh, think that you've got these Scriptures in you so much that they don't need to be read over us anew. Uh, Genesis 1, we're going to start with verses 1 through 10. In the beginning, 
God. Thanks for that mic drop, Moses. Uh, No explication, no justification of uh, how God became God or how the the underpinnings of why there's a God in the first place. Just in the beginning, God. We're operating under a presupposition here that there is a God. Perhaps transcendence uh, shows in our souls and nature more than we think it does. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Everybody say void. Void And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters." And let us separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good and the narrative continues. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, and finally day seven, the rest over creation. Uh, There's a widespread consent among biblical scholars and interpreters throughout the history of the church That Genesis 1, these words that we've just read and these words that continue through the narrative of Genesis 1 and 2, that this is less a narrative about God creating out of nothing, um, ex nihilo, but this is more a narrative of God taking the void, the dark waters that the Holy Spirit is said to have brooded and watched over and soared over. He took this void landscape and brought it into order. And there's this common consensus that what we read in Genesis 1, especially when you break down the Hebraic theology and thought behind Genesis as a whole, we see that this is less about God creating creation out of nothing and more about God ordering. That God was after a unique task of ordering creation in a specific way. God, the good God of order. And so we, we see God throughout the first six days of creation and even the seventh day of creation where he interweaves rest and sacredness into the very cosmological order in his stopping and resting. Uh, day one to seven, we see God ordering the cosmos and all creation. But then we continue to see this narrative of order and this task of ordering his creation, even in the way that he interacts with the seat of his creation, that is man and woman. And we see this uh, continuing order in Genesis 1, skip over to verse 27 to 30. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heaven 
And everything that creeps on earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. He endows man and woman with the divine responsibility to oversee and to tend and to take care of the Garden of Eden and all creation. And they are his indeed ambassadors in the creative order, the ones where they would be the representatives of their God and creator to the rest of creation. And so we see God giving them divine responsibility and really work. Even in the perfection of Eden, there is work. I'm sorry for those of you who think that in the new creation life, it will be sitting on our couches, eating gluten-free pizza, binge-watching Parks and Rec. I'm sorry. That is not the case. There will be work, but it will be redeemed work, restored work. And so we're seeing still in the creative order and also in the way that God deals with uh, the first man and the first woman that there is order that he's drawing the boundary lines between what they should and what they should not do. And we see this even more in Genesis 2. I told you we were going to look through a lot of scriptures. But Genesis 2, 15 to 17, he takes it a step further when it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. It's all yours. But... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God is establishing order in his creation. And one of the primary ways that he does this is defining the boundary lines between, like we said, what man and woman should and should not do. And he gives them all of creation to enjoy and to steward and to drink deep of and to lavish themselves in and to act as rulers in. And yet he says, okay, all of this, yes, 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 the 99.99999% all of creation is yours except the one tree. You got to avoid that. And the boundary line of order is drawn between you and this tree, And if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And I think here is when we can get hung up from time to time. Because we can view the commands of God sometimes, whether explicitly or like implicit uh, preconceived assumptions, that God's commands are some sort of way that he flexes his sovereign and omnipotent muscles, right? I'm going to Hulk Hogan you if you don't obey this command. You better obey Listen to what I say, as if he's like this power-hungry, type-A, micromanaging God. Like, my, my oldest boy, Rush, is into the Lego movie now, and Lord Business, he's this figure who just, like, micromanages everything, and, like, Taco Tuesday is actually some huge plan to, like, micromanage the entire universe. I know I'm getting juvenile, but that's okay. Come on. So, God is not this God who's, like, Lord Business, micromanaging all creation. But instead, he's saying, look, here is the boundary lines of order, and in these boundary lines, and only in these boundary lines, can you flourish. And outside of these boundary lines, there will be death. But if you can commit yourself to my commands and commit yourself to my order, then there can be life and life eternal on the table for you. We can say it this way, that it is only within God's intended order that his creation can thrive and flourish. Again, order 
as a way of his creation living in the life that he planned and destined them to live in. Not order as a means for him to flex his omnipotent and divine muscles, but a way that he tends and shepherds and gently loves all of his creation. We can say it another way, that God's divine order is a means to the end of the good life that he intended us to live in. And if we follow this line of thinking, then suddenly the commands of God from creation, don't eat of this tree, all the way through Torah, all the way through the lordship of Jesus in the New Testament and the new covenant that, that we live under now, it suddenly takes a different shape and makes more sense, doesn't it? Because we're not dealing here with a God who's power hungry, and we're not dealing here with a God who wants to snatch away our fun, and we're not dealing here with a God who has to have his way or else, but we're dealing with a God of order primarily as a means to the end of human flourishing. God wants us to flourish. God wants us to live the life that's uh, infused with his kingdom life and in the way that he designed us to live, but it can only happen within the bounds of his created and intended order. Are you with me, young adults? This is crucial to understand. He's not dangling this carrot in front of us. Do this. Oh, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Okay, time for punishment. But instead, he's beckoning us into this order, this intended order of life, this way of life that alone has the kingdom life uh, intertwined into it. This is the way to the good life, living within the created order and the commands of Yahweh. Let's talk about this at our tables for a little bit. We got a discussion here on the screen. Let's camp out on this and really, uh, you know, articulate and nuance this a little bit. Why do you think it's most important, or why do you think it's important to recognize God's order as a means to the end of the good life? Why is it important? What do you think? How do you see this at work in your lives and both on a theological level as well? Go ahead, take it away. We'll take the next 10 minutes, talk through this, ready, go. All right, let's pick this thing up. Hope your discussions were fruitful. Uh, at our table, we, um, you know, we were processing this a little bit, and I do think a, a qualifier is in order here. Um, we're talking about a very specific paradigm of humanity and the creation narrative, and God's order um, does not solely exist for us, right? Um, it is in some ways a means, but, but I want to just qualify this a little bit and say that God as a God who is wholly sinless and who is perfect and pure has to, right, out of the nature of who he is and out of a creation made from, from himself and his nature, it has to be a nature of order. It has to be uh, a, a thing that is, that is aligned and that is consistent with who he is. And so I'm not saying that God exists for us, and I'm not saying that, that order is not possible without humanity in the equation. But I just, I just think, I don't know if any of you were going there. I just think it's a helpful qualifier. So um, let's jump to Genesis 3, because here is where we see a turn in the narrative. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 is a narrative of order, like we've been talking about. But then in Genesis 3, we see, obviously, many of us know this passage in this Uh, this narrative, but we see something at work here that uh, goes against the created order that God has established. Genesis 3, uh, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delightful to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took, everybody say took, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. God's order and the promise of the good life that was on the table only accomplished through God's order, this good life. It begins to unravel. As soon as man and woman take and seize of the fruit and engage in this act of rebellion and disobedience, they go and they seize all of a sudden the, the invitation to the good life within God's intended order that was on the, the, on the table and the promise of this life that they could live in for all eternity in the garden, uh, in the presence of their loving father, completely uninhibited from relationship with him, this good life begins to deteriorate and fracture, and the thing starts to break down by their disobedience. And the tragic irony of Genesis 3 here is that Adam and Eve seized the fruit, but their sin seized them in the process. That as they went and as they took, as they seized, they thought that they were doing the seizing, but in fact their act of sin was so insidious that it started to take a hold of them and seize them from the inside out and corrode their souls and change the way that they viewed the world and change the way that they interacted with God. Uh, their sin seized them. And this is what sin does to us, even today, doesn't it? Where the promise of being our own Lord is on the table. And the promise of having order in our lives and control of our lives is on the table. And so we reach and we take and we seize, but we find that our sin begins to seize us. And everything that was promised is a sham. That it begins to unravel. That this promise that was on the table for us is exposed and we realized we have been duped. We see this with our greed. We want more money. We want uh, to be a, a little better off. And so we reach and we reach and we're greedy. And we, oh, if I could just get a better job with a higher paying salary. And if I could just get this, uh, then I'll be more content. And if I could just get that savings account at this number, then I'll know. And we, oh, and we reach and we reach and we reach. And I'm not saying don't save money. And I'm not saying don't work hard. But there is a line here. This thing that just, oh, I have to have more. This seizing Well, what does that do? That seizes us. And we find that our greed actually deteriorates us. And we find that somehow this idol has been set up in our soul. And that our pursuits and our passion and our love and our zeal is not for the Lord Yahweh exclusively anymore. But that there is an idol of money and mammon set up in our souls. This seizing and this seizing us happens in our sexual pursuits. Can we get real for a second? When we go and when we seek to seize sexual gratification behind a screen or with a person that is not our spouse and outside the bounds of marriage, what does it do? 
we seek to seize and it seizes us. All of a sudden we find that this promise of gratification and this promise of enjoyment, all of a sudden it's, it, it, it's, we're duped. It's a sham. And we find that we're guilty and we're shame-ridden and we're sinful and we just deteriorate from the inside out and it wages war against our souls. This is what sin does. The promise of the seizing and the promise of a good life all of a sudden turns on us and it's insidious and it begins to eat us alive from the inside out. Now, when it comes to this narrative of seizing, this narrative of uh, sin and this first rebellion, I think this, uh, this scripture usually in this chapter usually is referred to as the fall. And maybe even if you have your Bibles in front of you, it may say the fall of man or something like that. I think that that title is a bit misleading, <laughs> Uh, and I, I don't think it's as true to the text as what it can be. Because I think when we use the word fall, I think we can have the preconceived notion and the assumption, oops, I just kind of slipped. Uh, ah, okay, sorry, God kind of fell into sin. Oops. Or we think of it um, as, as maybe an act of disobedience. Yes, it was. But we're not, we're not dealing and we're not reading here about a mere act of, oops, slipping into sin. And we're not dealing here with even a, a mere act of disobedience, though it absolutely was. But what I want to suggest this morning is that Adam and Eve's sin was a high-handed act of anarchy against Yahweh's rule and an inauguration of the reign of chaos. This was not a standalone act. Oops, I sinned. Sorry, God. Okay, I disobeyed. You told me to do something and I didn't. Disobedient. It goes so much deeper than that. In fact, it is an act of mutinous anarchy that usurped the role of Yahweh, that took the lordship that only Yahweh had, that it was only his place to rule humanity. It was a, a taking of that and an attempt to usurp that authority and this act of anarchy. And in this act of anarchy and mutiny against the rule of Yahweh, Adam and Eve plunged the human race into a reign of chaos, where all of a sudden the good life has officially deteriorated and the promise of living with Yahweh in unbroken relationship and with all his benefits in an unbridled way. It's fractured, and it's flawed, and it's broken now, and something has gone awry in the creative order, and the reign of chaos has officially begun. And this reign of chaos would be that which Yahweh sought to dealt with through the law, Torah, which we'll look at next week. And he sought to deal with it through the sacrificial system, but then he once and for all overthrew this reign of chaos through his son, Jesus Christ. But what started in the garden as this seizing we're not talking here about just this act of disobedience. Again, it was. But we're dealing with, with a categorically uh, profound kind of sin that is a seeking out of a usurping of the rule of Yahweh, an act of anarchy, an act of overthrow. And I think if we're really going to understand sin in the way that uh, we're supposed to, and in a way that uh, positions us to, again, like we talked about last week, to truly realize that we're in need of a Savior, I think this kind of language and this paradigm is important to keep in mind that sin in our lives is not a fall. Oops, slipped. And it's not, oh, I'm sorry, God, I did this and you told me not to. There is that dynamic. I'm not belittling that. But what sin is, is it's usurping the lordship of Yahweh. 
And it's, and it's claiming lordship for ourselves. And it's saying, you know what? You promise this, this, and this. And, and what you promise, Lord, what we're admitting in our sin is that your promise of the good life is fundamentally flawed. And that I know what I'm doing here. And I know how to bring myself into the good life. And my rule, really, when the rubber meets the road, is higher than your rule. And obviously, I wouldn't say that we put language to our sin like this when we're committing it, but this is what it is. It's treason against the rule of Yahweh, and it's saying yes to this reign of chaos. And anytime we give ourselves over to sin, we're allowing chaos to just sweep through and get its hands on all sorts of things in our lives, and we begin to feel it in our soul, and we begin to see it in our situations and in our relationships, and and this promise of the good life deteriorates because this reign of chaos has been inaugurated. But you know, the beautiful thing is that you know what uh, the great invitation of the gospel is, one of the great invitations? It's to say yes to another reign, and it's to say yes to another ruler. And where the reign of chaos is over us, the invitation of the gospel is to say yes to the rule anew of Yahweh that is manifested through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus uses this kingdom language. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In fact, it is in your midst even now this reign and this rule of Yahweh. And when we say yes to Jesus, we're saying yes to the reign and the, the uh, ruler that was intended for us in the first place. The one who back in Genesis 3 uh, fell to the ground, the one that man and woman uh, rejected, the one that they scorned, the one that they walked away from. It's this reign. When we say yes to the gospel, we're saying yes to the reign of Jesus, the intended ruler of our souls and our life and our world. And it's only under this reign that Jesus Christ, the ruler, has the power to liberate us from this reign of chaos. And it's only in this reign, to take it a step further, that he's able to bring us back into this promise of the good life. Because obviously the good life deteriorated in the attempt of Torah, and the good life deteriorated under the attempt of the sacrificial system, which were both types and shadows of Jesus Christ. But when Jesus steps on the scene, the one in whom we live and we move and we have our being, as Colossians says, the one whom Colossians 1 says, all things were made through and all things were made for. This is the Lord that when we say yes to his lordship, the promise of the good life is put back on the table, young adults. And it says, if we say yes to obedience to Jesus, and if we say yes to his grace, and if we say yes to this life that's on the table for us, then we can step back into the promise of the good life. And the reign of chaos can be overthrown in our lives. And the lordship of Yahweh, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, can be re-inaugurated in our lives. Um, And you know, side note, I think that this reign of chaos idea uh, somewhat explains the biological bent that we have towards sin. I think a lot of people can, can get caught up in, well, Adam and Eve sinned, so like, why am I, how am I sinful? Like, I didn't deserve it. First of all, check yourself. Take heed lest you, lest you fall in Pauline language, okay? That's an arrogant, arrogant assumption, first of all. But second of all, I think when we adopt and when we start to think of like sin as this reign of chaos language, then it makes sense because we are born under a different reign and a different ruler than what Yahweh intended. It's like being born as a United States citizen. If our parents are Americans uh, and we're born in the United States, okay, then we are American, 
we're under the reign of Western democracy in America, which makes us American, okay? And we can say, oh, I never wanted to be, I didn't sign up for this, well, it's like the reign that you're under, bro. Like, if you don't like it, get off the train, okay? But I th- and, and does that explain fully our biological bent towards sin? No, I don't think so. And I think theologians throughout church history have offered other uh, ideas and propositions about this. But I think it's a helpful way to view how Adam and Eve's sin affects us all. We're dealing with a reign here. We're dealing with a meta ruler over here. And when we say yes, again, to the gospel, and when we say yes to our intended ruler, Yahweh, Jesus Christ, and when we say yes to this good life that he has on the table, then we're uh, in the process of being restored to a new heavens and new earth kind of life. And that's the eschatological narrative of the greater scriptures, that what was broken and fractured and destroyed in Genesis 3, God raises up from the ashes through his son, Jesus Christ, and now a life, once again, of eternal communion and restored relationship with Yahweh that's manifested in new creation life and garden living again, that's what's on the table for us as we say yes to the gospel. Uh, And it's this overthrow of the reign of chaos in our lives. So let's talk about this as we wrap up this morning. Uh, I just want to get real practical here. What stands out to you most about this morning's study of sin? Uh, what's that thing that, that you can pinpoint and say, yeah, okay, cool, yeah, that the Lord's encouraging me in this area this morning. Uh, go ahead, talk about it at your tables, and we'll pick this up in about 10 or 15 minutes. All right, much love. All right, people of God. Good discussion? Good. I'm going to take uh, good from the 10 of you. Okay, let's stand up. And the one more, 11. No, that's all right. I know we're brooding and like chewing and simmering and all that. Um, let's just extend our hands if you're comfortable with it. Um, Jesus, we say yes as a response. We say yes to your lordship. We say yes to your reign. Um, we say yes to all that you have for us and this life that's on the table for us, even sometimes paradoxically, this life that may not look like the good life, this life that may come with it difficulty um, and inherent struggle. We believe and have the audacious faith that you are calling us into something uh, in a life that we were intended to live destined to live, designed to live. And so, Jesus, we say yes. We pray that any area of, of our lives that is rogue or that uh, is living in rebellion under your lordship, outside the proverbial four walls of your kingdom, would you rein us back in? Would you gently and lovingly provoke us and convict us and bring us back into the four walls of the kingdom? Because we know that it's by your, uh, your kindness that you lead us to repentance. And so we say yes to you. And we pray that as we go forth from here this week, we pray that uh, every conversation we have, every work we engage in would be a sweet-smelling fragrance to you. And we pray that we would emit the aroma of Jesus Christ to the world around us, Lord. Let divine conversations be ordered this week, conversations with friends, conversations with family. Uh, God, would you do what you want to do through the work of our hands, the meditations of our hearts, and the words of our lips this week. And we pray that you would be brought all glory and honor and praise this week through our living. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.